0: All right, this is going to be a discussion about uh, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, Uh, a very interesting book. And I would suggest that all of you at some point get this book, keep it in your library, because this will be your chance to be able to speak uh, to the world about the facts supporting the fact that Jesus Christ walked in this world. God never intended us to accept Jesus Christ on blind faith. He never did. And so he laid out a path starting in Genesis, going through the entire Bible, that Jesus would come as the Messiah, the Son of God himself, would give himself up on a cross for our sins. And so we have an obligation to know as much as we can about the historical basis of Jesus, which reaffirms the theological and spiritual basis of Jesus. It ties in. It's all together, and so uh, I'm going to go through this book in detail, and you can see from my copy that I've done my homework, all right, uh, and, and so I've, I've read this book a number of times, uh, and I think it's a foundational text on this subject, and hopefully if it interests you, you can read it and, 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 and look at the bibliography and get other books that relate to it that will, will help you. Now, Lee Strobel uh, was trained as a lawyer. Let's not hold that against him. Uh, And uh, a very well-educated fellow. And he went on to be a journalist for one of the major Chicago papers. Uh, And in in that paper, his role was really uh, a a trial reporting role. He would take cases that would come up to court, and he would do intensive investigations about them. and write multiple articles about them. And he became very adept at doing this. Well, at some point in time, he was, he was uh, an atheist. He was an atheist. Uh, and he tells us that in the book. At some point in time, his wife came to faith. Uh, and it kind of annoyed him uh, that his wife had come to faith. And so he decided that he would uh, do an investigation to basically bust the bubble about Christianity. He was convinced it was nothing but a, a group of myths, made up fantasies, uh, and that it would take him maximum three to four weeks uh, to, to uh, knock this thing about. So he was always a skeptic. He starts this, this journey as a skeptic. And even as we read the book, we see that he has a skeptical uh, mindset. Uh, he says here on page 14 of the book, I plunged into the case with more vigor than with any story I had ever pursued. I applied the training I received at Yale Law School as well as my experience as legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune. And he will take two years, not three to four weeks, but two years. Uh, And at the end of the two years, he will come to faith as a Christian. Uh, And in fact, he will become a minister Um, it's an extraordinary story. Uh, And you see this. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to go step by step through the book. I plan to spend about an hour and and 15 minutes or so doing this, maybe a little longer. So bear with me. I'm trying to get as much of the book out as I can. And so he begins the discussion of the book uh, on page 19, if you have it. I'm going to reference it often. He talks about the fact, can the biographies of Jesus be trusted? Are there trustworthy biographies, meaning are the gospels of Jesus Christ, are those gospels, are the early teachings, are they actually uh, are trustworthy? And so he goes and he finds uh, highly respected experts all over the world uh, as he reviews this. Um, and, it's, and it's very interesting as he, as he delves into this subject. And one of the things that historians tell us, when you want to determine the accuracy of a story, how close in time to the actual event does the writing take place? In other words, if we're reading something that's historical, did it take place within 20, 30, 40 years of the event? Or did it take place hundreds of years after the event? And what we find is if you go back and look at some of the great uh, Greek writings uh, uh, by Homer... Uh, and the great Roman writings, what we find is that very often those writings took place hundreds of years after the event took place. And the problem with relying on uh, manuscripts that took place hundreds of years afterwards is that uh, myths take place and fallacies take place. Uh, It does not uh, contain eyewitness reporting. Uh, And so how does this How do our Gospels stack up against that kind of record? Well, our Gospels stand up very well. As Strobel uh, um, finds out from this expert, the Gospels are all written within really about 50 or 60 years of the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, And in fact, the writings of Paul, uh, which predated any of the Gospels, the writings of Paul predated the, the Gospels themselves, and the writings of Paul really took place most likely within 20 years, 25 years of the event. So now when you're relying on, uh, uh, on biographies that took place 20, 30 years uh, after the event, effectively it's almost like bulletins. It's almost like news reports. It's that reliable. Many of the people who would have been eyewitnesses to these events were still alive at the time that these writings were being passed around. Uh, And so it's very, very important for you to understand that, uh, that we have a solid, solid basis uh, for, for relying on these biographies. Now, you know, when we talk about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're talked about, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are talked about as the synoptics, meaning they basically are the same. They tell a similar story. Uh, and and, uh, Matthew was a disciple. uh, Mark, uh, was known as John Mark, was the uh, traveling companion uh, of Peter. And Luke was the traveling companion of Paul. So these were guys who had access to the very most reliable information. And they walked with the eyewitnesses. They talked with the eyewitnesses. Um, and so, as it relates to first, certainly the synoptics, uh, they have a similar story re- written within a short period of time. In fact, uh, many his, uh, theologians now believe that uh, Mark and Luke may have been written as early as 10 to 15 years uh, within Jesus' birth, uh, death, rather. And so knowing that that's proximity is such, you have a high degree of reliability. Now, uh, John, the Gospel of John, that many of you are very familiar with, (laughs) wink, wink, the Gospel of John was written later, probably about 60 years after the crucifixion. uh, and And the Gospel of John does not speak really about the same parables and miracles that the other Gospels talk about. But it speaks really about the soaring theological basis that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, and so w- when we see this, we, we have a strong basis for knowing that the facts as, as presented in the Gospels and in the writings from Paul have a very strong historical basis. Written within a short period of time of the life of Jesus while eyewitnesses are still alive and we're not subject to refutation. That's one of the things you're going to see uh, as we go through this study. You're going to see this, that there are going to be times when people are going to make claims, well, Jesus never said he really was God. Well, we know that's not true, and we're going to talk about it. Jesus said it often uh, that he was God. Uh, in fact. Uh, some people say, well, he only said that in the Gospel of John. John revealed that. It was never revealed in the synoptics. It's not true, because uh, you find the story in the Gospels, in the synoptics, of Jesus walking on the water. Now, come on, folks. Who's walking on the water? Uh, That's found in Matthew 14 uh, and Mark 6. Uh, And and, uh, most English translations, this is according to Strobel on page 29, most most uh, English translations hide the Greek by quoting Jesus as saying, Fear not, it is I. And actually, the Greek literally, if you were to go back and read the Greek literally, it says, Fear not, I am. How do you like that? Fear not, I am. As he's walking on the water, I am. Well, you know who, who the only other uh, entity was in the history of the world that would say, I am that I am, as he would speak to Moses. Uh, and so you see this. That's exactly what, how, how uh, God revealed himself to Moses. And so uh, it's, it's such a, a fundamentally strong place. Also, one of the things that you see in the uh, uh, synoptics uh, is that Jesus will refer to himself as the Son of Man. Now, growing up, I myself did not realize how important this... this uh, nomenclature was son of man this comes out of Daniel chapter 7 uh, verses 13 to 14 Uh, and if you have the strobel book this is on page 30 and this is a direct citation from Daniel now remember now this is now about 600 years before Christ would be born in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Let me tell you, folks, if you want to know if Jesus said he was the Messiah, there it is. It couldn't be more articulately phrased the Son of Man, approaching the Ancient of Days uh, and given all authority in this this world. Uh, And as as cited here by the expert used in this particular part of the book, he cites and says, this is someone who approaches God himself in his heavenly throne room and is given universal authority and dominion. That makes Son of Man a title of great exaltation, not of mere humanity. Not of mere humanity. Uh, And so uh, again, another example about the trustworthiness of the, of the, of the early writings and uh, asserting the fact that it was clear in these writings that Jesus Christ was God. There's another citation uh, in the book uh, to one of the experts saying that uh, one, of the, one of the other aspects that makes it clear that Jesus was God is that Jesus forgave sins. Now, what man could say your sins are forgiven? You know, when you go back and you study David and you see the sins that he committed, you know, one of the things that's very evident is he always asked God uh, to forgive him. Lord, I have sinned against you. But you never see another person anywhere in the in the scriptures that says your sins are forgiven. Why? Because only God could do that. Only God could do that. And so there's another very very uh, clear uh, attestation. Uh, about that now here's some of the contrarians that he puts out which is it's important to see the contrary position contrary position because sometimes you're going to get confronted by this and and you want to be able to articulate an answer Uh, here's the contrarian position we know very little about jesus the first full-length account of his life was saint mark's gospel which was not written until the year 70 that's false some 40 years after his death. By that time, historical facts had been overlaid with mythical elements. That's false, which expressed the the, uh, meaning Jesus had acquired by his followers. It is this meaning that St. Mark primarily conveys rather than a reliable, straightforward portrayal. That's absolutely false, okay? That comes out of a book entitled The History of God in which a liberal uh, theologian uh, writes this contrarian position. And you have to be careful when you hear people make these statements. You have to go back and challenge them to see whether or not it's, it's trustworthy. Are they relying on facts? Are they making opinions? Most theologians recognize that Mark was written earlier than, than the 70s. And as I said to you, when, when you study this, and you see that the synoptics were written most likely within 30 years uh, of Jesus' death, it was too early in time to have myth interwoven into the text there were eyewitnesses who were alive the jews themselves were there and so when when they affirmed that the tomb was empty the jews never said no it's not you understand the jews never said no the tomb wasn't empty what do they say the body was taken you understand? Do you see the difference now? From from a, certainly from an evidentiary point of view, that's important. That means that they have conceded the fact that the body is missing. Well, we're going to know that the, the tomb was guarded. All right, it was guarded both by temple soldiers and by Roman soldiers, and we're going to you're going to get we'll get into that. Uh, but it was guarded. So the con- so the uh, concession by the Jews. That the tomb was empty merely supports our position that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. All right? And so uh, we, we uh, understand this, uh, and, and it supports our position. Uh, now, one of the things that we, that we look at uh, is, the, again, the age of the writing. Well, the book of Acts, we know that Paul was executed in A.D. 62, And the book of Acts does not speak about his death. So that most likely means that the book of Acts was written before A.D. 62. Most likely in the late 50s, possibly 60. All right? Before Paul was put to death. Uh, And what do we know? Luke came first. The gospel of Luke came before the book of Acts, which now places the the, uh, gospel of Luke... Uh, certainly early in the 50s. Now now you're talking about a book written uh, within 20 years of of the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so it's becoming very, very close in time. There are no other ancient texts that are written within this close proximity of, of the event of a great person. None. None of the Greek biographies. None of the Roman biographies. None of them. It is only our books, the Christian books, as we see them in the New Testament. Uh, and and it, as one of the experts here said, it's written so close in time to the event, it's almost like a news flash. It's that close in time. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's very important to know this. Uh, and, and one of the things that we get when we read Luke. Uh, and it's pointed out here in this, in this text in, on page 35, if you have it, is uh, the high veracity and historical uh, proximity of greatness of Luke, uh, one of the great historians in the history of the world. And, and uh, it's, it's amazing how, how good he is, and equally good is Paul. And Paul writes in uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as he's relating, and remember now, 1 Corinthians is written before the synoptics. All right? Before the synoptics. Most people think, most theologians believe now, that Paul was probably saved within three or four years of the crucifixion. Uh, And uh, his writings probably begin Uh, in the 40s, in the early 40s, and continued into the 50s. Look what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers, At the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Look at the point of this. This means, as he has just given you that eyewitness testimony, he got that, I believe, when he went back to the Jerusalem church, uh, which would have been in the 30s, uh, five, six years after Jesus was crucified. He got all that information. Um, And so here he is, given the very creed. And so that church, that early church, recognized that what? Jesus was crucified. Jesus was buried. Jesus was resurrected within three days. And Jesus appeared after he resurrected and walked on this earth and appeared to hundreds of people. And that information was reported by Paul as given to him most likely within six seven years of the death of Jesus Christ but it was accurate historically even before then because that's what the early church believed Uh, and so good case can be made for saying that the Christian belief in the resurrection though not yet written down can be dated to within two years of the very event isn't that amazing within two years of the event of the resurrection, it was widely known through the Christian church that Jesus Christ was resurrected. Uh, It's just an amazing thing. It's the crowning confirmation of who Jesus is. And so you want to know if it's reliable? uh, It's absolutely reliable. And now the next question is, well, let's test. Let's test the eyewitnesses. How reliable are the eyewitnesses themselves? Um, And... uh, in this chapter, uh, beginning on page forty in the book, if you have it, uh, he he cites the opening section of Luke, which I love that as as the gospel as Luke's Gospel begins, Luke lays out what he is trying to do, uh, and he makes it very clear as a historian, what he's trying to do. quote, "Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to those. By those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. What did he just say? He said, I'm writing eyewitness accounts that have been handed down to us by others who saw it firsthand." All right? Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you can, uh, you have been taught. So there it is. He intended from the beginning to write an historically accurate account. He investigated. He interviewed the eyewitnesses. He saw the reports that were uh, transferred amongst the early Christians. He tested them, uh, and so uh, you you have a high degree of reliability by an exceptionally brilliant historian. In fact, the theologians have come to understand and have gone back and looked at the, uh, Luke's writings, and they are amazed at the accuracy of his writings, both in Luke and in Acts. Uh, when they go back and they check, check the uh, nomenclature and the location of places, uh, it always winds up being right on point. Now, one of the things that you're going to hear about uh, from those who, who do not accept uh, the story that I'm giving you, is they'll say, well, come on. There are inconsistencies. There are inconsistencies in the gospel. They cannot be reliable. Well, in fact, if you go back and study the inconsistencies, they are exceedingly minor, very minor inconsistencies. And in fact, the nature of the fact that there are slight differences between the synoptics supports the fact that it's reliable. Because you see, if everybody sat down together and said, let's get this story straight, let's write it together, we'll have one uniform story, that's not reliable. But when, when each person, on his own, writes the story, then you would expect to see some minor inconsistencies. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, one of the things that they talk about is the well-known story of the healing in Matthew, which says that an insert and a centurion himself came to ask Jesus to heal his servant, um, I pointed out. However, Luke says the centurion sent the elders to do that. Now, he says there's a contradiction. Well, really, honestly. Do you really count, would you really make, make that to be a contradiction? Obviously, whether the, whether the centurion came himself or he sent people from his household, the point was that he positioned himself in an act of submission to Jesus in order to have uh, his family member cured. Uh, and, and so, again, uh, an- another example was what about Mark and Luke saying that Jesus sent the demons into the swine at Jerasa while Matthew says it was Gadara. Really? I mean, seriously. We know that Jesus sent the, sent the demons, at, you know, into the swine. Uh, is there a slight differential at the, at the locale? Uh, again, weak Weak. But you see, I believe that when we have people on the other side that are inspired uh, by Satan, and let's be honest, Satan would like nothing better than for us to be able for people to say, I can't, I can't believe in this story. I can't believe in this story. It's, it doesn't touch my heart. There are too many inconsistencies. My mind can't get around it. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. Instead of understanding that this is, a, this is the, the greatest story ever told, with the greatest validity. And I'm going to say something right now that I will repeat at the end. You know, I've spent my life in court. I've tried thousands of cases over 43 years. And not once, not once in all the years that I went to court, not once did I ever have a case as strong as the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, came to this earth, was crucified on a cross and was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of God. Not one time, all right, and so I want you to know that, all right, and I've studied this, and I've looked at this, and so we don't, you shouldn't be shying away from the Bible, you shouldn't be shying away from telling this story, because the very story is affirming in and of itself, and when you hear the facts, and it's so overwhelming that the facts, the historical Jesus supports the spiritual Jesus, you understand that? It's tied hand in hand. It's so so clear. Um, And so, uh, then one of the things that the contrarians will say is that, uh, well, you know, there really was no place called Nazareth. That's really, that's made up. Well, again, again, they're wrong. Uh, Recent archaeological evidence found tombs outside of Jerusalem making reference to Nazareth. Uh, and early Jewish writings, right about at the time of the destruction of the temple, reference the fact that priests from Jerusalem were sent to Nazareth because they were no longer needed in Jerusalem since the temple had been destroyed. How about that? Now, uh, what does it also affirmed? It also tells us that Nazareth was an exceedingly small place, less than 60 acres. How do you like that? Most likely not bigger than a truck stop. All right, and it supports the fact when at one point in the scriptures it says nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. Remember that. So it was it was a place that really was was uh, was despised. Now, one of the things that you need to look at as we again look at the corroborative aspect of the gospels is uh, the fact that none of the opponents of Jesus ever dismiss the miracles. Think about this, there are no writings, there are no presentations, there are no arguments that you can pick up that say, it's a lie, that miracle didn't take place, not one time. So again, uh, it, it, it all indicates that we have a highly accurate, historically accurate account written within a short period of time of the actual events by people who were accurate in what they said, uh, and, and that we can rely on. Now the next question is, well, uh, are these biographies, uh, accurately preserved for us? How do we know when we read the the synoptics, when we read Paul, how do we know that these items are, are as they were written originally? Couldn't they have been, um, mismanufactured over the years and and all kinds of myths get into it. Well, again, again, uh, you put the test, the historical test of time. You look at other writings that we, that the secular historians have no problem reading the life of Julius Caesar. Uh, and we know that that, that writing was written six, seven hundred years afterwards. And maybe they have uh, eight, nine, ten manuscripts that relate back to that. How do you like that? And yet, what do we have for, for the uh, Gospels? Here's what we have. We have, within a short period of time, thousands of manuscripts written in both parchment and papyrus that we know written within, really, some of them written within 25, 30 years of the events that we still have. And hundreds and thousands written within 150, 200 years. Uh, and, And so... Well, we have a high degree of reliability when we look when we look at this. There was one scrap manuscript that came that came up that really changed uh, history, uh, and this is on page sixty one of his book, uh, and it's and it's referenced by one of the, one of the uh, outstanding experts that we, he relies on. This fellow Metzger, uh, he said there would be a fragment of the Gospel of John containing material from chapter eighteen. It has five verses, three on one side, two on the other. It measures about two and a half by three and a half inches. How was it discovered? It was discovered in Egypt in 1920, but sat unnoticed for years as a fragment. Uh, And then they went back and looked at it, and then they decided, well, what does this date to? When they went back and dated it, they pretty much conceded that it went back to about the year 100 to 115. How do you like that? An actual citation a series of verses from the gospel of John Uh, and so what does it mean it means that we have from a very very early date a hundred let's call it uh, a reference to the gospel of John the actual writing and where did we find it we found it in Asia Minor Uh, in, in fact we found it in Egypt which would have been far from Ephesus Meaning that the gospel was being spread, even at the year 100. How about that? And they have the actual citation. Uh, and so there are many other, many other uh, manuscripts found. Uh, and so, a, and what they look for is in the original Greek. It has to be in the original Greek. It needed to be written on papyrus. Uh, uh, and, and so you you see these things, and they, they calculate that there are. Five to 10,000 of these very early New Testament manuscripts, all effectively uh, referring to each other, giving the same story about Jesus Christ. Uh, The citation here in the conclusion on page 63 says that F.F. Bruce, the eminent professor at the University of Manchester, England, and author of the New Testament documents, Are They Reliable?, says, there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. None. How about that? None. So we have, we have now in, uh, strong evidence and support for the fact that the documents themselves are highly uh, reliable. Uh, and, and, you know, here's, here's something that you're going to come across from time to time. Look, and I'm not going to knock other faiths, but I'm going to say something about a cult, Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnesses will come to your door and say, Your Bible is wrong uh, in the King James Version of 1 John 5, verses 7 to 8, where it talks about the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. They will say, That's not in the earliest manuscript. And I don't know if you've ever seen that. If they come to your door and make that, that assertion, well, you need to straighten them out. You need to do what one, pe- one of the guys in our uh, class does, Ray Spencer, when Jehovah's Witnesses would come to his house, he would invite them in and then lock the door. <laughs> you like that? And he isn't kidding. Uh, and said, so, but that does not dis- dislodge the firmly witnessed testimony of the Bible to the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's understand this. You're not going to find the word Trinity in itself in the Bible, but you're going to see the doctrine very clearly. At the baptism of Jesus, the Father speaks. His beloved Son is baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. At the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There are many places where the Trinity is represented. Don't tell me that our Bible is wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And so we need to make sure that when people make these assertions that we hold them uh, to accuracy. Um, And so uh, here's the point. Norm Geisler, uh, who is one of the great theologians, uh, uh, has concluded, along with William Nix, that uh, the New Testament has not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it has survived in a purer form than any other great book, a form that is 99.5% pure. How about that? Better than ivory soap. All right? Better than ivory soap. And then you'll hear people talk about the fact, well, come on, your Bible. I mean, it's just they decided, a group of men decided that they would accept these 27 books. That's how the canon got started, Uh, and and I can't rely on that. Well, again, what you will find is when you go back and study this is that those 27 books were widely accepted by the first century church, widely accepted. And it's only later, uh, you know, after the first century that, you know, well into the second century where they started to come up uh, with some of these uh, Gnostic books, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary. Uh, and and so it was clear that those other books were not consistent with the 27, that they were out of line, uh, and so they were never accepted because they were, not, they were different, and it was clearly that, that they were different, and so uh, it's important that you understand the very strong basis for this. Uh, for example, read the other documents, read these other Gospels for yourself. They're written later than the four Gospels, and the second, third, fourth, 5th and even 6th century, long after Jesus lived, and they're generally quite banal. They carry names like the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Mary that are unrelated to their real authorship. On the other hand, the four Gospels in the New Testament were readily accepted with remarkable unanimity as being authentic in the story they told them within a short period of time uh, of the death of Jesus Christ. So, highly reliable historically accurate, shortly written after the death of Jesus, eyewitnesses still alive, no adverse testimony about the miracles uh, of that of Jesus committed. So now the question is, is there corroborating evidence outside of the Bible that shows that Jesus lived? What other examples, what other documentations can we look to that would affirm this life Uh, and so beginning on page 77 of his book he lays this out one of the first people that he lays out is a historian called Josephus now Josephus is a first century Jew a Pharisee who is taken prisoner by the Romans and effectively goes over to the Roman side abandons his Jewish background Uh, and is allowed to live. And Josephus writes uh, a a book, Antiquities of the Jews, and he writes at length about things that affected the first century Jewish experience. In his autobiography, he defended his own behavior in the Jewish-Roman War, which took place between 66 and 74. Uh, You see, he had surrendered to the Roman general Vespasian, Uh, And instead of committing suicide, which is what the other Jews didn't, he didn't do that. He decided he would go over and join the Romans and live, and he had a pretty good life uh, in accordance with that. And so, uh, Josephus actually writes about Jesus, Uh, and it's interesting, Uh, and it's the first example of corroboration for Jesus outside the gospel. Let me read this to you. If you you have the book, you can see it on page 78. Uh, uh, and this is in the book, The Antiquities, Josephus describes how a high priest named Ananias took advantage of the death of the Roman governor Festus uh, and, 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 and speaks about this event. He leaned over to his bookshelf, pulled out a thick volume, and flipped to a page or to a location he seemed to know by heart. Here it is. Quote, He convened a meeting of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. What does this mean? It means his first century corroboration by a Jewish historian that James, the brother of Jesus, was brought up to the Sanhedrin, was charged and was stoned to death. This is not from the Gospels, it's not from the Bible, it's from an adverse witness. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, And so this is very interesting. And so you have a reference to the brother of Jesus who apparently had been converted by the appearance of the risen Christ. You know that James never accepted Jesus during his lifetime. It was only after Jesus came out of the grave, was resurrected, and James saw him, that James came to accept Jesus Christ and actually became the bishop of the Jerusalem church. Uh, And so you see this. There's there's another passage that Josephus writes in his book, The Antiquities, about Jesus. Now, there's some dispute about some of the terms in this section, but uh, the, the general writing is not disputed. And this, again, is on page 79. Quote, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to be called a man. For he was one who who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused uh, by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, For the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians so called after him has still not to this day uh, disappeared. So, what does it mean? Some of the language in there, Josephus most likely would not have said. Uh, He most likely would not have said, Jesus was a great man. He probably wouldn't have said that. But he's acknowledging for certain, and the theologians agree on this, historians agree, that Josephus is acknowledging the fact that Jesus Christ existed and that he had followers who were giving up their lives for him. Uh, And so this is important. It's very important. Uh, And so people, you know, there are always going to be people who say, well, there really is no, no proof that Jesus existed. Well, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm I'm giving you citation after citation, uh, and, and so uh, you see this here, uh, and so don't let people do that to you because we have we have these we have this this uh, evidence. Now, also there are Roman historians that refer to Jesus, for example uh, Tacitus. Uh, uh, referred to Jesus. He has recorded what is probably the most important reference to Jesus outside the New Testament. In AD 115, let's think about this now. 115, we're talking what? 60, 70 years after Jesus died. Tacitus writes in the history, he says that Nero, quote, persecuted the Christians as scapegoats to divert attention, suspicion away from him from himself for the great fire that had devastated Rome in A.D. 64. He's persecuting Christians. Alright? He's writing about this in the year 115. Um, and and uh, uh, it's, it's very interesting. Another citation from that book uh, is as follows. Nero fastened the guilt and fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Uh, and so, accordingly, an arrest was made of all who pleaded guilty, uh, an immense multitude was convicted, and the, the uh, city went on fire. So there you have it, uh, this, this uh, clear recitation uh, by Tacitus, uh, that Jesus Christ exhibit. This is an important testimony by an unsympathetic witness to the success and spread of Christianity based on a historical figure uh, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. There's another historian, Pliny. Pliny will write about Jesus. Uh, and and he, he talks about the fact how the, these Christians were being persecuted. And again, we're talking about Pliny. This is again somewhere about the year 100 115, quote, they also declared that the sum total of their guilt or error, he's talking about the Christians now, amounted to no more than this, they had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately amongst themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. How about that? There's a Roman historian writing about the example of the first century Christian church. Uh, That was written most likely about A.D. 111. And so what do we see from these secular historical accounts? We see that the early Christians are worshiping Jesus Christ as God. Now what about the event when Jesus was crucified that the earth went dark? You know that story? that just before Jesus gave up his spirit, it turned into night. There were earthquakes. Uh, We know from reading that the graves uh, in Jerusalem opened up and dead people walked around in the city. Uh, And so there was another uh, Roman historian called Thallus, T-H-A-L-L-A-U-S, who in A.D. 52 wrote an account... Of the events in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, uh, that was even though they didn't, they no longer had the book. The accounts that he had was quoted by Julius Africanus in the year 200. Julius Africanus was one of the early church fathers, and so Julius Africanus is reading from the book from Thallus, this historian, which we no longer have here, and it make re- it makes references to. Uh, that particular day and the events. And and so, effectively, uh, uh, as it's described by Africanus, the phenomenon evidently was visible in Rome, Athens, and other Mediterranean cities. According to Tertullian, it was a cosmic or world event. Phlegon, a Greek author from Quaria, writing a chronology soon after 137, reported in the fourth year uh, of the, the 202nd Olympiad that there was a greatest eclipse of the sun and that it became night in the middle of the day. They called it an eclipse. Folks, it was not an eclipse. Astronomers tell us that. This was a supernatural event by God. But it took place and I'm giving you a secular historian that gives us uh, support from that. Um, and so, uh, what do we see? There is more Evidence corroborating Jesus Christ from secular historians than any other religious leader. All right, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not any other religious leader. There are amazing amounts of secular citations uh, indicating that Jesus Christ uh, lived, and, and and it was and, and so it's it's interesting, and so when you go back and you read from the from the Bible, and you read what Paul said, knowing that it was an early creed, uh, and what he said, what do we know? He said, here's what we know historically about Jesus. Uh, we know that first, Jesus was a Jewish teacher. Second, many people believed that he performed healings and exorcisms. Third, some people believed he was the Messiah. This is now from the secular record. Fourth, he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fifth, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate under the reign of Tiberius. Sixth, despite this shameful death, the followers believed that he was still alive, spread beyond Palestine so that there were multitudes of them in Rome by A.D. 64. Within 30 years, there are multitudes of Christians in Rome. And seventh, all kinds of peoples from the cities and the countryside, men and women, slave and free, worshiped him as God what I've just given you is a summary of the historical record through the writings of secular historians not the Bible you want accuracy you're not going to see this in terms of any other uh, religious leaders Uh, and and so it's it's so important important Um, and so uh, to me it's amazing uh, and, and as we study this, and this book is very good for this purpose. This book puts it together in one, in one place. And so you have the, you have the ability uh, to read it and to, to digest it and to be able to put, it, put the arguments in your head. By the way, and people will say, uh, well, Jesus never said he was God. Another false statement. You know that Jesus indicated quite clearly he was God. You read the seven I am statements. Uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, and, and you read that Jesus called himself the Son of Man over and over and over again, we have absolute evidence of the fact that Jesus considered himself God. Now, what about the archaeological record supporting the Gospels? Well, this, again, winds up being something that's, that uh, resonates today. We know that John talked about the Pool of Bethsaida, uh, and they, they never they believe that that, that, that was uh, made up, and yet within the last 20 years, they've excavated down, and they actually found the pool, described exactly as John said it would with the porticos. Uh, they found that, uh, and, and so you see it. Uh, and, we have, and we have other discoveries. The Pool of Siloam from John chapter 9. Jacob's Well from John chapter 4. The probable location of the stone pavement near the Jaffa Gate where Jesus appeared before Pilate. In John chapter 19, even Pilate's own identity, all of which have lent historical credibility to John's gospel, uh, and so clearly, clearly, we have uh, absolute support uh, for the historical veracity of what we're relying on. Now, here's the thing: you know that when Jesus was was born, it says that they they ordered a census, and that each person was 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 commanded to go back to their hometown. Well, a lot of, of secularists will say that's made up. There's no basis for that. As a matter of fact, they recently found that that's not true. Uh, they, they actually found a government order dated to the year 104 in which it indicated that because of a, sentence, a census, every person had to go back to their town of origin. How do you like that? So there certainly was uh, a basis for this. There's no question about it. Um, and and we clearly clearly have that evidence. One of the other things that clearly support the evidentiary basis for, for Jesus is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and you know the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, found out in the, year, in the 1940s. Uh, and they found a series of Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls, and they went through. One of the things that came up when they saw that was the proof that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, was almost exactly the way it was, it was presented uh, to us uh, and it was accurate even though the book of Isaiah as the, as the manuscript that they had uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls was a thousand years older than Jesus. How do you like that? A thousand years older and yet that manuscript was accurate. Uh, and so here was one, here's one of the citations that relate to that that gives you support for who Jesus is. Uh, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, now on page 106 of the book, and the Gospel of Matthew describes how John the Baptist, imprisoned and wrestled, wrestling with lingering doubts about Jesus' identity, sent his followers to ask Jesus this monumental question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? You know that's one of the great teachings and lessons that we talk about, where here's John, John the Baptist who dedicated his life uh, to being the precursor to Christ. And yet now in jail, he's wondering, are you the one or should there be someone else? And, and, and through the centuries, Christians have wondered about Jesus' rather enigmatic statement. Back to him. Jesus didn't say yes or no. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is, is preached to the poor. Matthew 11, verses 4 to 5. Well, when they got the Dead Sea Scroll and went back and looked into Isaiah, one of the things that uh, uh, some of the contrarians said that there was never any statement anywhere uh, in Isaiah that the dead are raised. The dead are raised. You wouldn't find that in Isaiah. Uh, And what did they find when they went back and looked at this this reference? Uh, and, And so what they found was They found that, in fact, the the citation from Isaiah 35 absolutely contained the phrase, the dead are raised. What does that mean? It means that in the very text that Jesus was using uh, at the time that he he walked on this earth, contained in Isaiah, in that writing, was the phrase, the dead are raised. Are raised. And so Jesus was citing that very verse to prove that in fact he was, uh, he was who he said he was. And here's the thing when we, when we go back and examine the historical record of the Gospels, and we see time and time again accuracy in terms of locations, accuracy in terms of people, accuracy in terms of, of the census, accuracy in terms of events, uh, and yet you compare it, for example, to the Book of Mormon. Nothing, none of the references in anywhere in the Book of Mormon have ever been found to be historically accurate. In fact, they've been found to be historically inaccurate. And so it again, again, uh, it it amplifies the fact of who Jesus is uh, and why it's reliable. Now he puts a chapter, chapter 7 in his book, Uh, And and of course, remember, he's a contrarian, and so he's posing these questions. Was Jesus really convinced that he was the Son of God? Did Jesus think he was the Son of God? Well, it's clear when you go back and you look at the miracles, Jesus indicated that the miracles were supposed to bring the Jews uh, to faith. And so he sees himself uh, as a miracle worker working under the auspices of God the Father. Another thing that's, that's cited here in this sec- section is when the uh, Pharisees and the Jewish elite challenged Jesus about who are his witnesses. You're making these statements. Who are your witnesses? Because you know under Jewish law, you needed to have two witnesses in, in order to support the statements that you were making. Uh, and so uh, Jesus, however, cites himself as a witness. Meaning, he has divine authority. Uh, It's very interesting uh, that, and so Jesus is effectively using himself as a divine witness. There's no other place that you would find anything like that in the Bible. Also, Jesus, for the first time, uses the term Abba, Abba, to describe God the Father. Now, nobody in historical Judaism, whatever used the term Abba. Abba effectively meant, if you, we could come to the closest terminology today, daddy. Daddy. It was a, a, a most intimate expression that you could use. And Jesus is using this, connoting the most personal relationship that you could have. And so it, it, it implies clearly that Jesus had a degree of intimacy that was unlike anything that the Jews had ever seen before. And here's the kicker. Jesus is saying that only through having a relationship with him uh, does this kind of prayer language take life. The only way you're going to be able to have to say Abba, God, is through Jesus. And Jesus made that point Uh, Quite clearly, that is why Jesus is the Son of Man. Now you understand why the Son of Man terminology is so important. Going back seven hundred years to the Book of Daniel, where Jesus alone would come in uh, before God the Father, Uh, and then and then we talks about the fact that John uses the majestic language in in the Gospel of John, chapter one. Some of the most majestic language you would ever find in the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And we believe that that is absolutely true. And the question is, would Jesus be comfortable with that? There's no question Jesus would be comfortable with that. Jesus recognized who he was. Um, and and uh, he said it often, often, over and over. There's a famous exchange recorded in Matthew in which Jesus asked his disciples in a private meeting, who do you say I am? You remember that? Peter replied with clarity, you are the Christ The son of the living God, instead of Jesus ducking the issue and feigning, not not wanting to hear it, what did Jesus say? Blessed are you, he said, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. If you want the citation, that's Matthew chapter 16, that you see it. So it's quite clear Jesus knew precisely who he was. He he, he used the title son of man. He recognized the fact that the miracles were the embodiment of the power of of the Father in him and made it all the, the, the most clear. In fact, uh, the oldest Christian sermon, the oldest account of a Christian martyr, the oldest report of the church, is the, is the prayer noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which is written by Paul. I told you that this is probably written within uh, 10 to 15, maybe 20 years of the death of Jesus Christ. And, and, and clearly in that message, it was the message of what the church believed and taught that God was an appropriate name for Jesus Christ. So let's make no mistake about it, folks. Jesus Christ is God. The Trinity is written clearly uh, in the Gospels. Make no mistake about it. Don't let anybody uh, dis- disabuse you of that. Uh, and, and so Jesus believed clearly that he was the person appointed by God to bring in the climactic saving act of God to save human history. And Jesus understood that. He believed he was the agent of God to carry out the will of God. Uh, and that he had been authorized by God and actually empowered by God uh, to do it. Uh, and so uh, the question becomes, did Jesus really believe he was the son of God? The okay, answer is yes. Yes. Emphatically Yes. Clearly, yes. Did he see himself as the final Messiah? Yes, without a doubt. Remember, he came to bring the message to the Jews. The whole plan of God was the completion of the covenant between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that the Jews would stand up and be the evangelical messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save humanity. And as Jesus walks on center stage, the Jews exit stage left. And that's why we are here. All right? That's why we are here as the Gentiles, uh, because of that act. And so here's the question I have for you today. Is there any other first-century Jew who has millions of, of followers today? Is there any other? Oh, none. None. None but Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's so, it's so uh, uh, resonating so strongly. Uh, and, and, and then he has a chapter that I want to focus on, chapter 9, in which, he, again, he's a profiler because, because Strobel would normally do profiles on, on defendants to see whether or not they, mean, they match the attributes of a person who would be a killer. And so the question here is, did Jesus fulfill the attributes of God? And Jesus claims to be God. Did he actually have the attributes of God? And one of the people that he... he uh, Interviews here is Donald Carson, PhD, who I've used a lot of Carson's uh, writings, uh, and uh, quite a quite a, a gifted theologian. Well, as Carson says, one of the first clear evidences that Jesus knew He was God was 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 the miracles. That when Jesus would ask for divine power to do the miracles, and you look at the miracles, they're so overwhelming. Uh, that, that you recognize that who else could do this? Who else could bring a man out of a grave after the man had been placed in the grave for four days? Lazarus. And what happened? Did that turn the hearts of the Jewish elite? No, in fact, it made them more, more determined to kill Jesus and, in fact, to kill Lazarus. Lazarus had to go into hiding. Uh, and so you see this then who else could say, I forgive your sins? There's no human being that would say that, I forgive your sins. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could say something like that. Uh, And and then you see in the early church, recognizing who Jesus was, you have that great citation uh, in Philippians chapter 2, which is one of my favorite writings. Uh, And again, recognizing that this would have been written... A short time after uh, Jesus would have been uh, uh, executed, it says as follows. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself... And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. So you understand, here's writings that's accepted creed of the first century church indicating who Jesus is. He knew he was God. He had the attributes of God. But he emptied himself of the attributes of God. The theological term is called kenosis, meaning that when Jesus came to this earth and became man, he effectively, willfully gave up all of the divine powers that he had and instead relied on God to give him the divine power from time to time when God determined that Jesus would need it in order to to fulfill his mission. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was not omnipresent, that Jesus was not omniscient. He did not, when he walked in this earth, have the ongoing characteristics of God. He emptied himself of those characteristics. All right, He gave up equality with God. That's what it means. As you understand that, he willfully gave it up, and yet God would give it to him from time to time. Uh, As as Carson says here, strictly speaking, Philippians 2 does not tell us precisely what the eternal son emptied himself of. He emptied himself, uh, and he became a nobody. Some kind of emptying is at issue. But let's be frank. You're talking about the incarnation, one of the central mysteries of the Christian faith. We don't know everything. We don't understand the uh, individual... uh, Uh, exigencies of of the relationship between Jesus and God. But clearly, clearly, Jesus emptied himself. And then one of the other things that you'll hear contrarians say, uh, you'll you'll look at John 3, 16, right? Uh, and And in the original King James that they translated from the Greek, they used the words only begotten son. And so those people who who want to demean Jesus will say, well, you see, he's not divine. He's not divine because he was begotten, meaning he was created. And if he were created, he could not be equal with God. I'm giving you this to prepare yourself for that argument that you might hear. Well, actually, when you go back to the original Greek and get the best original Greek translation for what that sentence says, it actually means, quote, unique one. He was the unique one. Uh, And and this this is usually used in the first century, meaning unique and beloved. So John 3.16 is simply saying that Jesus is the unique and beloved son, or as the New International Version translated as the one and only son, rather than saying he is ontologically begotten in time. Jesus is not begotten in time. Jesus was there from the beginning. He is God. Just as God the Father is God, Jesus Christ is God as well. Uh, And so uh, it's important as you come to understand this uh, and and get a a good solid feeling of, of who Jesus said he was and what he was about. Now here's the question. Did Jesus and Jesus Christ alone Match the identity of the Messiah as written in the Scriptures, uh, and in this particular chapter, which is chapter ten, Strobel uses a uh, a Jewish theologian who became a Christian, a guy named uh, Lapides. Uh, it was interesting uh, interesting uh, dialogue with Lapides, who talked about the fact that he grew up in a religious Jewish family. Uh, and he, they never would discuss Jesus. They never would read anything about Jesus. He came, he came from a conservative Jewish synagogue uh, in preparation for his bar mitzvah. Uh, and uh, when I interjected to ask what his parents had taught him about the Messiah, Lapidis' answer was, was crisp. It never came up. It never came up. And I would say that if you have Jewish friends and you get into a discussion about this, you will find them woefully ignorant. Woefully ignorant. Uh, and so he begins this spiritual quest, this Slapides, who then goes back and reads the prophets, uh, and then traces the prophets, goes back and reads the New Testament, and clearly comes out of the fact that <laughs> there's only one person that matches up. Now, in this in this particular chapter, uh, Strobel says that there are uh, four, 40 Prophecies about Jesus. That's wrong. And when I, when I last studied this, there were nearly 300 prophecies relating to Jesus Christ uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and so uh, it, it's very clear that they talk about this. And of course, he recites in here Isaiah 53, talking about the death of Je- Jesus. Uh, Lapidus, when he read uh, Isaiah 53 after he began this journey, instantly he saw it. Instantly he saw it who it was. And so you just summarize some of the important prophecies. Some of them. This is on page 179 of the book uh, that that this gentleman mentioned. He cited four, four dozen major predictions. Isaiah revealed the manner of the Messiah's birth of a virgin. Micah pinpointed the place of his birth, Bethlehem. Genesis and Jeremiah specified his ancestry, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the tribe of Judah, the house of David. The Psalms foretold his betrayal, the accusation by false witnesses, his manner of death, actual crucifixion described in detail in the Psalms, uh, uh, pierced in his hands and his feet, even though crucifixion had not yet been invented, folks, had not yet been invented, When it's cited to in the Psalms, which are about 900 years B.C., crucifixion wouldn't come about as a means of death until about the year 250 B.C. And so hundreds and hundreds of years before the Psalms talk about the fact of crucifixion, uh, killing uh, the Messiah. Uh, And you see this. uh, And and so what does it mean? Well, it means this, that, that if you talk to a scientist and ask the scientist, what were the odds of seven, just seven of those prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one man what would it, what would the odds of that uh, one of the scientists said well he did the calculation and it would basically be having a silver dollar with a, a, a dot on it uh, and, and you had uh, silver dollars covering the entire state of Texas to a depth of two feet and then you would be able to find go in and pick one silver dollar up with the black dot on it. That would be the odds that would be equivalent to the fact that seven prophecies would come together that would equate to this man. And I'm going to tell you that that there's not seven, that there's several hundred. And so, you know, the point is, open our minds. God doesn't ask us to do it in blind faith. He doesn't ask us to do it in blind faith. And then in this discussion with this Jewish man, uh, Strobel says, well, what about the argument that it was a coincidence? You know, it was just a coincidence. And, of course, that's laughable, uh, that it was just a coincidence. Or, or how about the fact that Jesus knew, Jesus knew about the prophecy, and he purposely engineered his life so that it would be in accord with the prophecies. After all, we know the story in Zechariah about the cult, get the cult, never ridden upon it, and Jesus knew that, Jesus had the cult. Well, did Jesus know 30 pieces of silver? We're going to be paid by the priest. He didn't know that. There's so many other indications. Did he know exactly that he would be pierced? Did he know that he would be on the cross and he would not have a single broken bone? Although his his body would have dislocations. Did he know that? That, And that was a prophecy going back uh, to the Passover. That that you shouldn't break any of the bones of the Paschal Lamb. Uh, And so... I mean, it's absurd when you see some of the arguments that are, that are made. <coughs> One of the very uh, uh, strong arguments about this is the fact that if you read Daniel uh, in chapter 9, Daniel will lay out uh, the uh, 70 weeks of 7, in which he will talk about the fact that after the wall in Jerusalem is built, there will be effectively the Messiah will come in to Jerusalem. Uh, and that the Jews will be saved. It will be an a, 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 uh, epical event. Um, and if you take that, if you do the, the mathematical study of that, 70 weeks of seven, and you go and you contrast it, looking to the edict, the day that the Jerusalem walls were going to be rebuilt, uh, there was a book written in the last century, The Coming Prince, which I would I'd say it will be an interesting book for you to pick up. You can still get it. Uh, on Amazon and on your Kindle, by Sir Robert Anderson. Uh, And what did he find? He found that if you actually took that mathematical uh, assertion, uh, the 70 weeks of seven, every week is is equivalent to seven years, and you calculate it out, effectively what it would do, it would place you pretty much at the very moment that Jesus would be coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Coincidence? Please, I mean, you see how everything has been has been foretold uh, so much. So much. Then here's the here's the uh, contrarians. We'll make the assertion that uh, Jesus didn't die on the cross; he fainted on the cross. Okay, this is actually an argument that is made that Jesus fainted on the cross, and so he goes and he brings in this pathologist. Uh, in fact the the Muslims say this that Jesus did not die on the cross interestingly enough Uh, and so he brings in a pathologist who goes through and reviews the record the actual historical record of how Jesus uh, was persecuted and how his death was uh, experienced and this pathologist makes it very clear that there is no worse way of dying than crucifixion but that Jesus actually was near death even before they put him on the cross that Jesus, as a result of the beatings and the whippings, uh, and the whips had pieces of metal and glass in the leather, and, the, and his flesh had been torn really apart, almost to the point where you would see muscles and ligaments, uh, and, and a tremendous blood loss that he, that he experienced, and dehydration. And so really, up until the point that Jesus was put on the cross, Jesus was as near to death as you could possibly be. And then talking about crucifixion itself, how how evil crucifixion is, where where these spikes would be put in your wrists uh, and through your feet, and the bottom line would be that when you were put on a cross like this, you would eventually die from asphyxiation because you couldn 't breathe because every breath that you would take you would exhale, but you couldn't you couldn 't lift yourself up to get a breath, and so what 's happening your body is basically uh, poisoning itself and you're becoming asphyxiated and you're seeing this terrible, terrible death um, and, and and you talk about this. And then you, and then you have the issue uh, where, uh, where it says that Jesus' uh, sweat drops of blood uh, and the pathologist said that there's an actual condition, condition called hematidrosis, uh, which is in fact we're, we're under extreme stress People will sweat drops of blood. And so here's Jesus. And then the question becomes, well, uh, is it possible to survive this? And the pathologist says, there's no way. Nobody could survive a crucifixion. It's impossible. It was the worst form of death. And then he talks about the fact that when the Roman soldier would have pierced Jesus' side, pierced his side, Water and blood would have come out, and he said that's exactly what you would have expected from somebody who was crucified, that the water would have been built built up in the pericardium uh, and and effectively would have resulted in cardiac arrest. Jesus' uh, arms uh, would have been dislocated, that when they stretched him to go on a cross, uh, they probably would have brought them out another six inches than they should have been. And so here you have uh, uh, him being having all these bones out of place, which then comes up to Psalm 22, which fulfills the prophecy, which took, year, took place 800 years before, which said, my bones are out of joint, but not one bone is broken. How do you like that? How do you like that? When the Roman soldiers would go up normally to those, a person on the cross, as, uh, at the end, to ensure that they were da- dead, they would take a, a steel shaft and smash their uh, leg, breaking their, their leg bones, causing final death. Well, when they went to do that with Jesus, he had already expired. Why? Because it had to be fulfilled, that not one bone of his body, not one bone of his body uh, would, would uh, uh, be broken. And so how do, you, how do you answer the skeptics that say, well, he really, he really just fainted on the cross Uh, And the disciples took him away. And and as this pathologist said, Jesus would have been in such horrific physical condition if that were the case, that no one, no one who saw this could in any way believe that this was the Son of God. He couldn't have raised up his disciples or given a, a message of exhortation. Not in that kind of condition. He was dead. There's no question about it. He was dead. There was no way that he could have survived. Well, then what about the issue of the missing body? This is in chapter 12. The missing body. You know, the Jews contend that uh, the disciples got together uh, and went into the tomb and stole the body. That was the argument that they raised. They never said that the body was there. They never said that. They made it quite clear that the body was taken. And so the question is, what is the evidence? What evidence do we have that the tomb was empty. Uh, And again, there's another expert, uh, historical expert, uh, who defends the the, uh, empty tomb here, uh, and it's quite clear. The first thing that we know about this is Joseph of Arimathea. If the early Christian church wanted to pick somebody who was involved in burying Jesus, they never would have picked Joseph of Arimathea. Why? Because Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. All right, But he was not there on the day that they voted to condemn Jesus. Luke tells us that. And yet Joseph of Arimathea comes to become a central person in his tomb. He was considered to be one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. And so Joseph of Arimathea, effectively a, a Pharisee, takes the body of Jesus and puts him into a tomb that had never been occupied. And by the way, there are people that believe that the story when the rich uh, young man came to Jesus and said, Lord, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? Remember that story? Uh, and, and Jesus finally said, you have to sell all your goods, give up everything you have, and follow me. They believe. many people believe that was Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know what's going on with Joseph of Arimathea, except we know he's a Pharisee, but now he's come out of the closet uh, on the day that Christ has died, and he takes the body, and he puts him in a tomb. And so, Clearly, this would not have been a story that the early Christian Church would have preferred. They would have preferred that it was one of their own. But you see how God writes these stories. He writes it from a position in which we have adverse testimony that supports what we say. And so here he is. He puts him in the tomb. Now the question has become: uh, How secure was the tomb? Well, we know that that the high priest insisted that there be guards. They go to Pilate. We want guards. And so Pilate says, you shall have guards. So we know that for sure there were temple guards, and we know most likely there were almost there, there had to be Roman guards as well. And so there were numerous people guarding the temple in which a large rock had been placed uh, in front of it. Uh, we have reliable evidence to say it. So how secure was it? Well, it was more secure than any, any tomb you could have expected to find during that period of time. Um, and so this suggests that the, that the guards were really historical and the Jews knew it. And the, and the answer for you is this if it weren't true, if in fact there could be any plausible argument that the tomb was not empty, don't you think that you would have read something by the Jews to that effect? Don't you think there would have been some published account indicating in fact the tomb was not empty? But do you never see it, there's no evidence. No argument ever made, ever made, that, that the tomb wasn't empty. It was empty. It was empty. But they claimed that, that the disciples uh, stole the body. And so what you see here, this becomes the very core of the Christian church. It becomes the very core. Uh, and one of the things that we know about that Jesus himself said, just like, uh, just like uh, uh, in the belly of the whale, uh, Jonah had to spend three days in the belly of the whale. So shall the Son of Man spend three days in the earth uh, and then be resurrected. Well, some, some uh, contrarians will argue, well, now come on, see, he's, he's wrong. It's not three days, but again, if you go back historically, you will find that in, under Jewish law, any part of a day was considered a day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days, all, all correct. And the other thing here, that, another example of why our, our account of the empty tomb is so, I believe, so accurate, is look at the first witnesses. Women, if you were writing a story and wanted to create a religion uh, and wanted to have it stand on its feet, you would never have women be the first witnesses. A woman, unfortunately, I'm sad to say, could not testify in a court of law was not acceptable testimony and so all of the very first people that see Jesus are women which I say says a lot about our faith doesn't it about what Jesus has brought the equality that Jesus has brought Christianity and and marvelously so as to how women are should be treated Uh, and so uh, clearly right there Jesus appears to women. So what are the summary arguments about the, about the empty tomb? First, he said the tomb, the empty tomb, and this is in his expert, cites this. The empty tomb is definitely implicit in the early tradition passed along by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right, very clearly passed along in that, in that very first passage. Second, the site of Jesus' tomb was known to Christian and Jew-like, so if it weren't empty, it would be impossible For a movement founded on the belief in its emptiness. The resurrection came into existence because every single member of the faith knew that that tomb was empty. Third, we can tell from the language, grammar, and style that Mark, the gospel of Mark, got his empty tomb story, actually in his whole passion narrative from an earlier source. In fact, there's evidence it was written before A.D. 37. Meaning what? Meaning that the fact that the tomb was empty was being written about in the early church within a couple of years of the death of Jesus Christ. A couple of years. <coughs> uh, a respected Greek, Greco-Roman classical historian from Oxford said it would have been without... Precedent anywhere in history for legends to have grown up that fast. Do you understand what I just said? It was unprecedented in human history for myth and legends to have grown up that fast. In other words, it was accurate. Historians would recognize its accuracy. Uh, fourth, you have the very simplicity of the, of the empty tomb story in, in Mark. Uh, You don't see any flowery language. Uh, You just see that the tomb is empty in very, very clear uh, language. Fifth, the unanimous uh, testimony that the empty tomb was discovered by women argues for the authenticity of the story, even though it would have been embarrassing for the disciples to admit that women would have been the very first uh, witnesses. Sixth, the earliest Jewish polemic presupposes the historicity of the empty tomb. This is important. It presupposes the Jews presupposed that the tomb was empty. They make all these other arguments, but it was not it was they're all wrong. Uh, and And it's so clear that they're wrong. Uh, and then we talk about the post-resurrection appearances, the record about the post-resurrection appearances. Uh, wh- what is the evidence on that? Well, again, you, you you go and look at the historical record, and Paul gives you, the very earliest rec, uh, writing on that in 1 Corinthians. if you have your book, it's on page 228. Uh, and he said, nobody questioned Paul's writing when he wrote that in 1 Corinthians. Now he would have written that within 20 years of the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, and and uh, uh, it's amazing when he wrote it, when he wrote that uh, and he affirmed it in two other places in Corinthians uh, chapter 9 and Corinthians chapter, Uh, 15 and he says in one of those am I not an apostle have I not seen Jesus our Lord Uh, and so uh, it's clear that that Christ that that Christ appeared uh, a number of times to a number of people and it was reported from the very ever very first point that it took place Uh, And so what we have here, on the face of it, we have incredibly influential testimony that Jesus appeared alive after his death. There were names of specific individuals and groups cited, uh, eyewitnesses whose names were written uh, within 20 years of of the event taking place, and certainly there is no counter-writings to refute it. Don't you think that, in fact, if the eyewitness testimony was wrong, you would have seen writings that said this is a complete lie. This person was not there. These these events didn't take place. There is not a single piece of evidence evidence going back to that period of time that undermines uh, undermines what, what Paul said. Uh, and so it's it's so clear that it becomes a creed. And so we see he he, he indicates here that this creed that Paul wrote about indicating that the, who had seen Jesus alive, the 500, the disciples, the women, goes on, chapter and verse goes on. This was accepted, evidence by the church within a couple of years of the death of Jesus Christ, written about within 20 years of Jesus Christ, never refuted, and becomes the central testimony about who Jesus Christ is. Uh, and it's, it's so important. And if I had to just give you the, the summary of, those, of that evidence, it's as follows. First, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. Then to the other women in Matthew 28. To Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. To the 11 disciples and others in Luke 24. To the 10 apostles and others with Thomas being absent in John. To Thomas and the other apostles in John 20. To the 7 apostles in John 21. To the disciples in Matthew 28. And lastly, he was with the apostles at the Mount of Olives before his ascension in Luke 24, along and in Acts 1, with 500 other eyewitnesses, all together at the same time, seeing the same event. You want evidence? You want evidence? I give you evidence. Here's the point, folks. Here's the point. If this were a case in a court of law, and I were to put on each and every witness that I just gave you, and I started Monday morning at 9 o'clock, and I put 15 minutes of time cross-examining each of those witnesses, it would go from Monday at 9 a.m. till Friday at 5 o'clock. Nonstop. Nonstop. That's how many witnesses there were about this event. And so uh, when you come to this summary, uh, Strobel's summary, as you see this overwhelming evidence that he puts together over a two-year period of time, uh, he, he, he gives his summary on pages 260 uh, in which he reviews each and every aspect of what I've I've gone through and concludes that, in fact, Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And I would say to you that if you leave here tonight, you leave here tonight uh, and, and still have questions, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. All I can tell you is that God never, ever expected us to take anything by blind faith. The overwhelming evidence is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave up his divine attributes and came to this world and lived as a man and spent three years uh, preaching and teaching and doing miracles uh, and then ultimately gave up his life as a sacrifice once and for all so that all mankind could find a way to be saved and died on the cross and after three days was resurrected from the dead and walked in this world for 40 days amongst hundreds of witnesses who saw him, all of this written within a short period of time of his death in a highly historically accurate way uh, in which there are thousands of manuscripts attesting to the support of this evidence. And so I would say to you folks, that we in this room understand Jesus Christ. It's the Son of God, uh, and we recognize. And I want to close right now with a prayer, uh, just as where you are, and I'm going to make this prayer for the fact that there may be someone here tonight who has never before accepted Jesus Christ. And so let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the record that you've given us. Lord, we are overwhelmed when we, when we read how, how supportive the historical record is of your life, Lord. And I pray that each of us that tonight that have listened here come to terms with this so that we can go out to a world and explain it to a world that needs to hear this, Lord. And I pray that our people have the courage to go out and make this known. And Lord, I know that this room is filled with believers. And yet, Father, I believe that there is a chance that in this room tonight, there is someone who may not have accepted Jesus Christ. And so if you are that person, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, I'm going to make a prayer. And I would ask you that you, make the, you repeat this prayer within your heart silently as I make it. And the prayer was as follows. Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I am a sinner, Father, and I give you my life. Forgive me my, of my sins, Lord. Take over my life and lead my life for the rest of my days. Lord, I will follow you wherever you want. Lord, I accept you as the Son of God. I recognize that you died on the cross for my sins, that my name was written in the palm of your hand. I recognize also, Lord, that you died and were resurrected from the grave in three days, and that now you sit at the right hand of God. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I will follow you for the rest of my life. And if you made this prayer tonight, you are now a part of the family of God. And I want to speak with you afterwards. You can come up and speak to me. And I, and I will talk to you and encourage you as well, and I hope that's the, that's the case. Lord, I ask you also to be with all of our people, to continue to let this lesson, lesson resonate in our hearts, protect them until we all get a chance to meet again, Lord, as we continue to study your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. I just want to thank you all for coming. And John, I can't think of a better person to present the case for Christ to us. Um, and as uh, jurors that now have to make the decision uh, on what he's what's been presented, how do you find him? Um, I have a, just a couple quick announcements. Um, we did run out of the Case for Christ books to earlier, um, but Jane is in the back as you exit. If it, if it is. If you would like to get a book ordered, she's got a clipboard with name and phone number if you want to leave that with her. And I also wanted to mention that the coming prints that John mentioned, we can order that as well if you'd like us to. Um, And I learned a new word, contrarium, tonight. Thank you. Good night.